This is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. In today's podcast, we look at how mapping is helping the response in earthquake-stricken Nepal. Obviously, after a disaster, there's a real kind of acute need for careful coordination of this stuff and, and, and a certain amount of chaos going, in, going on on the ground. Um, and, and MAPS is underpinning all of this. We discover how a new device that works as malaria dialysis to remove parasites from the blood of infected people. It's a device where you circulate a patient's blood outside of their body through an external blood loop. Uh, and in this we've incorporated a magnetic filter which is able to capture malaria infected cells. We hear from the director of the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex about the future of healthcare in Ebola-stricken West Africa. And fairness in global health research. SciDev.net's editor Kaz Janowski spoke to Martin Saplovida from the research division of the IBM Corporation in New York. You have to understand, I come from a data world. <laughs> so when you come from a data world, you view the world through data lenses, and sometimes you force causes through data and technology. Listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. On the 25th of April, Nepal's capital, Kathmandu, was hit by the biggest earthquake in over 80 years, with a magnitude of 7.9. Well, at the time of recording, the quake's death toll has risen to 4,800 victims, and NGOs working on the ground fear for people living in rural areas of the country, at the moment unable to communicate. There is the fear that as many as 15,000 people could have been killed in the most remote areas of the country. Aid agencies and government are sending financial as well as practical aid, but ordinary citizens are helping out too. They may not be saving lives directly by helping people out of the rubble, but they're really making a big difference by informing the reconstruction and strengthening preparedness. SciDev.net's Lou Del Bello is here to reveal who these citizens are and what exactly they're doing. Hello, Lou. Hi, John. So, first of all, what is the situation like in Nepal and how can people help from abroad apart from sending in money? Well, I discovered that a group of open source mappers here in London is working to help map the disasters area and provide fresh updated information on what's still working in Nepal and what went down. And now I'm sure you will ask, why should we care about maps instead of sending money and aid? Yes, good question, because we don't think of maps as the main thing when a disaster like this strikes. Well, the thing is, in an emergency, you need to provide food and medical supplies, that sort of things. And if you don't have a map to show you how to move around, it gets really difficult to organise the response. So I sat down with Harry Wood a volunteer at the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team. And we discussed why maps are a very good way to help make a difference if you can't travel to the field or send money. I'm Harry Wood. I'm a, an enthusiastic volunteer for the OpenStreetMap project and for the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team, which is uh, sort of a group within a group of OpenStreetMap. Um, obviously, with the earthquake in Nepal that struck a couple of days ago, we are looking to respond to that. So particularly trying to supply maps to people that will make use of them, um, aid agencies on the ground, um, and also responding by trying to improve the maps in the area where the earthquake struck. 
Can you tell us a bit more about why providing aid agency with maps after a disaster is important? Sure. I mean, it's it's actually, um, it doesn't take too much of a leap of imagination. It's essentially for uh, any kind of purpose that you or I would use a map for um, similar kind of things that they're going to need maps for general logistical planning. They're figuring out where to send their uh, their staff. Um, obviously, after a disaster, there, there's a real kind of acute need for careful coordination of this stuff and, and, and a certain amount of chaos going in, going on on the ground. People trying to figure out who's who's suffering the most where and trying to get the resources to those people first. Um, and and maps is underpinning all of this actually you know you need to you need to locate your staff you need to locate the population that's uh, most at threat can you explain how openstreetmap works in practice from london to nepal sure so openstreetmap is um, a map of the whole world created in a wiki style process so similar to wikipedia creating an encyclopedia we're creating a map of the world um, and it's an open licensed map of the world. Um, but obviously this platform for creating open licensed maps turns out to be extremely useful in the developing world, in humanitarian context, um, because we're often creating the very first maps, or first detailed maps of these areas. Um, now in the case of Nepal, actually, it turns out that we've had a quite active open street map community based in Nepal for several years now. Um, particularly a group called the the Kathmandu Living Labs have been very busy mapping Kathmandu in, in a great deal of detail. Uh, and that's fantastic because it means that when, when when this earthquake happened, they've got these really detailed maps already in OpenStreetMap. How do you build a map of a remote area? Do you use satellite data or satellite imagery or you have people, you know, on the ground? Yeah, so the OpenStreetMap process involves... Um, several different possible approaches to creating map data, actually. Um, with the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team, we're often using satellite imagery, yes. Um, so we're often uh, working from home on our laptops. Um, you know, we can, be, we can be watching the news on TV and we decide that we want to improve the map of Nepal in response. Um, and, and it is just looking at um, satellite imagery and looking for areas of the map that have got missing roads, for example very important, but also adding more detail to it. So we're starting to draw around every single building in, in Nepal to get a really, really rich detailed map. Um, so that's all that's all based on uh, aerial imagery. That's what we call remote mapping. Um, but OpenStreetMap has uh, actually traditionally been built up by people walking around with GPS units and uh, people taking photos, or even people doing something very simple with a pen and paper, just making notes that they, of data that they want to add to the map. Why it's important to have an open map as opposed to a normal Google Earth map in the case of humanitarian crisis or for the developing world in general? Well, OpenStreetMap is open across several different kind of dimensions almost. It's it's open in the sense that it's openly editable. So if you see something missing on OpenStreetMap, you can go in there and add it immediately. But it's also also openly downloadable. This means you can download... um, the entire map of Nepal, for example. But this is very powerful for humanitarian response because uh, you can work offline. This means people can uh, enter a disaster zone where you, you can be pretty sure there isn't going to be a very good internet connection. But you can already have your, your smartphone or other devices juiced up with grid, good map data already loaded onto them, um, all working completely offline without an internet connection. Okay, can we say a few words for people from other countries who want to know more about what's going on in Nepal, 
how to use the OpenStreetMap portal and if they want to contribute, what can they do? Sure, so OpenStreetMap is um, quite similar to Wikipedia in the sense that you can you can view it and then you can click the little edit button and you can edit it. We've tried to make it very simple. Um, you, you do kind of get launched into this uh, map editing environment, which looks a little bit complicated at first, um, but, you know, sit down for an hour and, and puzzle through it and you'll be, you'll be away, you'll be editing the map. Um, and this is very kind of rewarding and addictive, in fact. It's great fun to, to edit a map and add data to a map. So what Harry is saying is that everyone can help map Nepal, and that's very useful in terms of a response. But I know that there are challenges still lying ahead, aren't there? Well, yes, because a quake of this intensity is likely to be followed by more than 30 aftershocks. So the emergency is really not over, and if we consider that Kathmandu region is home to 2.5 million people, the toll could increase even more in the coming weeks. So the work of the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team could really help not only when it comes to rebuild infrastructure and distribute food and medical supplies, but also to deploy the right resources in preparation for future shocks. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, John Eskam, for news and views on science and global development. This year's 25th of April will be remembered for the earthquake in Nepal, but on the same day every year, the world remembers a different tragedy and renews its commitment to beat malaria. Globally, malaria is responsible for almost one million deaths every year, the vast majority of which occur in Africa. There are many ways to tackle malaria effectively, but there isn't an ultimate solution. But a combination of different strategies, ranging from simple bed nets to high-tech medical devices, can prove effective to respond to malaria in different conditions. Today we look at a new device that takes a novel, drug-free approach to beat malaria. Reporter Anand Jagatia has been learning more and sent us this report. I'm George Frodsham and I'm the founder of Medisive Limited, a company that I've spun out from UCL to commercialise our technology which is a blood filter to treat malaria. Can you just um, briefly describe what the device does? The best way of thinking about it is that it is dialysis for malaria. So it's a device where you circulate a patient's blood outside of their body through an external blood loop. Uh, and in this we've incorporated a magnetic filter which is able to capture malaria infected cells directly from the rest of the blood and all the other blood components go back into the body completely unharmed so it's able to gradually reduce uh, a malaria patient's infection burden So how does your device work? How does your device manage to separate out the infected blood cells from healthy blood cells? So there's this incredible property of malaria-infected red blood cells whereby they are magnetic, naturally magnetic. And this is due to a waste product that the parasite produces as it consumes the cell. And that means it has magnetic properties which make it distinct from all other cells in the bloodstream. Um, Now those properties are weak and they're small, but we're able to use our device to target the cells on the back of those. physically remove them from the rest of the blood flowing by. So this approach to treating malaria is is fairly novel and so why is this kind of technology needed in the current fight against malaria? The fact that this is a drug-free treatment is definitely the main advantage 
of the technology. There are limitations today in our abilities to treat malaria patients. Uh, the first is very famously drug resistance. So drug resistance has been a big problem in the past uh, for malaria. Uh, and it's emerging again at the moment in Southeast Asia, and it's a huge concern to the global malaria community. And if that resistance does spread into Africa, then it would have devastating consequences. So clearly, the ability to have a drug-free alternative to the current status quo is extremely appealing. But that's not all there is. In cases of severe malaria, so this is uh, overwhelmingly children but also tourists who don't have any natural protection to the parasite, they often arrive at hospital to, for treatment but quite simply too late. So your chances of surviving malaria and also the time it takes for you to recover are strongly linked to your initial parasite burden when you begin the drug treatment. What our device is able to do is very rapidly, even faster than drugs, reduce that parasite burden in just a couple of hours. So this is a drug-free treatment, but it could certainly be used in combination with existing therapies in severe cases. So how did this device come about? So this started off as a, an idea that uh, I had with my supervisor at University College London, uh, Professor Quentin Pankhurst. So my background in, is in engineering and physics. Uh, I'm not a medic and, and I'm not a biologist. So we were looking at this problem from a very different angle, I think, to the way it's usually approached. And when I uh, found out um, this, uh, this piece of research which reported the magnetic properties of malaria-infected cells, we sat and thought, well, why not? Why, uh, why couldn't this be done? The challenge in something like this is to achieve the results in a short time frame. So there's not really any point in having a treatment such as this if it takes two weeks to achieve the desired reduction in parasite burden. You're just not going to help the patient. So the real challenge for us was to develop a dice which not only was effective, but also very rapid. Um, uh, and on top of that, because we're talking about malaria, affordable. Uh, so those were the engineering challenges in, in developing the device. So, so you've designed this device to be potentially as cheap as possible. And so can you tell me a bit about the manufacturing and how it's put together? That's right. So malaria patients are inevitably in very challenging settings. So this is something that needed to be very cheap to manufacture and very easy to use. And those two parameters really drove our design. It's difficult to say what this would actually be priced at, but we anticipate that they can be um, delivered for £25 per filtration kit. Um, one of the interesting benefits of what we're talking about here is it's something that could impact not only on survivability of the patient, so saving lives, but also have an impact on the average time that patient spends in hospital, which is the driving factor of how much it costs to treat any patient, but also severe malaria. So we think not only can we reduce the mortality, but we could also reduce the overall cost um, to the hospital and to the patient.
So at this stage, it's still quite early days. Um, you've come up with the prototype and you've done some early trials. Uh, could you tell me a bit about uh, the results that you've come back with? So uh, the results that we have at the moment indicate that scaled up, the device could reduce a child's parasite burden by 90% in under three and a half hours. So to give you some perspective, that's four times faster than you get from the current best, strongest intravenous drugs available, the IV artisanates. Are there any plans to maybe take this out into the field where they maybe don't have access to hospital treatment? Initially, at least, this is a treatment that has to be delivered in a hospital environment. It's a very new approach to treating malaria, uh, and there are risks involved with taking blood out of the body and putting it back in again. However, in the longer term, we do hope to be able to design something that is portable and suitable for uh, rural environments, malaria clinics um, that are much more difficult to access. The challenges there are really socio-economic and geographical rather than engineering. You need to make sure that you have someone who's trained to do the procedure. There are challenges in terms of access to electricity uh, and in controlling infection in those challenging environments. But as you say, in order to reach more of the 220 million people who get malaria every year, we're going to need to design something that is appropriate for very difficult rural environments. What's next for you? What do you envision the future challenges to be? And you know, how soon do you hope we could expect to see devices like this being used? We anticipate being able to perform the first trials in man sometime next year. And I hope that we'll be treating our first patients around the world in 2017. What we're doing right now in terms of looking to perform the safety and clinical trials required for us to get to MAN is obviously to raise funding to support the project. So we are, we are taking this forward, as I said, as a company, so we're not a charity. However, our objective is certainly for this to reach as many people as possible and to save as, as many lives. We have already received some very valuable support, notably an enterprise fellowship from the Royal Society of Edinburgh, funded by the BBSRC, and also from the Royal Academy of Engineering, who uh, I was runner-up on their ERA Foundation Entrepreneurs Award, and that gave me access to the Enterprise Hub. We're not quite where we need to be in terms of raising funds. We have clinical trials to conduct and prototypes to make, but I'm confident that with the support of these institutions, uh, I will be able to get the funding that we need to get this to patients as soon as possible. Anand Jagatia talking to George Frodsham of Medisave about a new device that could help tackle drug-resistant malaria. Well, stay with us to learn more about alternative approaches to Ebola and an index for fairness in public health research later in the podcast. SciDev.net has just published its first spotlight of 2015 and this time we're putting the lens on the West African Ebola epidemic and its many lessons for public health nationally and globally. Well, SciDev.net journalist Imogen Mathers is here to tell us a little bit more about it. Hello there Imogen. Hello John. So tell us more about this latest spotlight. Well the latest spotlight looks at the Ebola crisis in West Africa and the lessons that it might offer for responding to future outbreaks of Ebola but also of other infectious diseases and how emergency health response can be improved. 
So who have you been speaking to for this month's Spotlight? Well, I went down to the University of Sussex to the Institute of Development Studies to talk to Professor Melissa Leach, who is director of the Institute. And she is also co-leader of something called the Ebola Anthropology Response Platform. So she's been hugely involved in advising health response on, on the crisis. So what is the main focus of the interviews? Well, this interview looked particularly at the social and historic reasons why people in the Ebola-affected countries, so Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, have so little trust in government health services. And Professor Leach spoke about the massively weak health infrastructure in those countries and how that's led people to turn to other avenues for healthcare. That actually before the crisis hit, people in Liberia, in Sierra Leone and in Guinea were not used to going to formal health facilities on a regular basis. So we'd seen really a kind of disintegration of health systems throughout the region, sometimes manifested in, in poor health facilities and stockouts of drugs and lack of staff and so on, but also in poor management of those systems. So what there hadn't been was investment in the systems to, to pay staff, to, to regulate what was, what was happening. So we had within people's very pluralistic understandings of health and therapy, people making use of a great variety of other kinds of health providers, which ranged from um, purveyors of Western medicines, but often in a privatised way, so the travelling drugs peddlers who would get on their bicycles and get out to villages, or pharmacies in towns, but also a range of traditional healers, Islamic healers, and home care of all sorts of kinds and herbal medicine. Um, so... The idea suddenly that in the context of an Ebola outbreak, people should flock to formal health facilities and, and treatment units um, was somewhat alien. So if government services are failing and people have a more pluralistic understanding of healthcare altogether, what does this mean for the future of healthcare in these countries? Well, Professor Leach told me about how the Ebola epidemic has really exposed the urgency of not only reinvesting in healthcare systems, but also rebuilding them in a, in a different way. So I think if there's a lesson here for, for the future, it's about reinvesting in health systems and doing so in a way that, that builds those broader cross-cutting capacities to treat very basic everyday ailments and to embed the use of those facilities in a way that is much more integrated with community needs. So, so probably to focus again on community-embedded health workers and their, their links with state services. I think there are also opportunities to integrate state services much better with the variety of private providers who've sprung up. And I think there are opportunities now to regulate and accredit some of these private providers, which I think will build the kind of resilience that, that would be needed to be able to respond effectively should another epidemic happen in the future. Now, what about international funders? What was their thinking on this? Well, she told me about the role that the international agencies have been playing in these countries. And in, in many areas across the three countries, these donors are propping up healthcare in quite a major way. And this obviously has its own, its own problems and issues. In Sierra Leone, for instance, there was a strong move to, to do mother-child healthcare through traditional birth attendants who were linked up with the Women's Initiation Societies, the Sande Society, for instance. An anthropologist, Carol McCormack, documented this in great detail. And there was a very effective programme in the 70s and 80s to work through traditional healers and traditional women's carers and birth attendants in ways that very much integrated um, modern biomedicine um, and healthcare techniques with, with people's own social practices around caring for women in labour 
and the social protocols that went around it. And I think there's scope for much more of that. I think there's there's also been a, a often a, a divide in the global health community between seeing there's public there's public health and then there are private providers who are sometimes seen to be maybe they're a bit corrupt maybe they're seeking profit maybe they're they're not delivering proper drugs and so on and certainly there are plenty of um, of less than best practices mm. amongst private providers but equally there are less than best practices amongst amongst public providers and I think um, a lot of really important work of late has shown how health markets really are serving particularly poor people very effectively and that the health systems of the future. Okay, so what about other international actors? Multinationals, for example, are they involved? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in all three of these countries, there are places where multinational companies have for a long time been involved in extractive industries like mining. I mean, interestingly, the mining companies in most of these countries did very little when, when the Ebola outbreak hit. They, they, in some cases, they made some token investments in, in outbreak control and health services in their particular areas, but then most of them got out. Mm. They got out, they removed their staff, they repatriated them, and as a result, that, that in itself will have set back simply the economic growth in these, in these countries. But what I think one needs to see is a rethink that, that makes sure that companies are now investing in a way that does respect rights that does generate employment for people and that does make sure that there's support to health and other other services in in the regions where they're operating otherwise i think we'll we'll see a rerun of what's what's happened all over again mm. imogen mathers thanks very much for coming in thanks john and a longer version of the interview can be found in the spotlight facts and figures area of sidev.net Global health research is virtually unregulated, and this can result in inequality between research partners. Well, SciDev.net's editor Kazianowski has recently attended an event hosted by CoRed, that's the Council on Health Research for Development. CoRed have come up with a tool to solve this problem. Kaz, can you explain more? What's this tool all about? Well, John, it's exactly what it says it is. It's a measure of fairness. and. That measurement, for example, might be of uh, fairness in terms of funding. So one often hears situations where researchers in the global south say that after a partnership is completed, that uh, when funding was being provided for the research project, the partner in the global north gets 70% and the partner in the global south is left with 30%. So inequality. And this would be a way of measuring that and making sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen. I spoke to a delegate from IBM, uh, Martin Sepulveda, and Martin said that it's not just about funding, it's also about benefits. And I was surprised at how complex those benefits of health research can be. Health research is a massive industry. Enormous amounts of money on a global basis are spent in research. Tremendous value is created in health research, some as a result of the product or service that's created, some as a result of spin-off effects. 
lateral uses of something that was created for one thing finds applications uh, in, uh, in others. And in all of these, there's people, there is infrastructure, there are jobs that are associated with this, there are industries, there's business, there's intellectual property that's created. That all comes out of investments in health research. And the interest that CORED has, whose mission is to help strengthen and create capacity for research in low- and middle-income countries, is to create a mechanism that helps promote a fairer distribution of all of this portfolio of benefits that are derived from doing health research so that the people and the communities and the countries where research is being done in low- and middle-income countries, they get their fair share. Martin Sablovida from the IBM Corporation. Kaz, is this inequality deliberate? Well, it would appear that it is, maybe from the global south, that is how it appears. But Martin was very, very keen to point out to me that he thought that in fact it wasn't deliberate and that it was all to do with simply not seeing the bigger picture or indeed the detail of that picture. Here he is again. No one believes that this imbalance is something that's conscious and deliberate on the part of the researchers, right? It reminds me of a story that I know very well, and it involves quality of care in the healthcare delivery system in primary care. Before practitioners were challenged by data on the quality of what they really did, the belief of every primary care physician I knew was that they did their very best to provide the very best care for every person in their practice. Right? And they questioned whether they needed more information because they knew they were doing the very best they could for their patients so that the quality of their care, the fundamental belief was, I provide high quality care. And then the data comes in, people start collecting the information and they start adding things up and they present dashboards and results to these practitioners and the practitioners say, oh my God, right? I thought I was doing better than that, right? There's an opportunity for me to make some changes. Now those practitioners, they weren't consciously not doing some things that the data says you aren't doing these things. They thought they were doing those things, but they weren't. Well, that's all very interesting, but why now? We've known about this imbalance for some time, haven't we? We have. Uh, indeed, that is the question I, I put to Martin. I said, what's special about this particular moment in time? And John, I was just wondering, maybe I could ask you, what, what do you think? is the reason why why is this fairness suddenly on the uh, agenda of researchers has there been a certain amount of consciousness raising over the years that that people have realized that this just isn't on well funnily enough some people say that the index we still don't know what shape or form this is going to actually take but that it could be considered to be simply a tool for raising awareness but that's not the reason that martin gave me 
he said that actually the moment is right now because of data. And of course he would say that because he's from IBM. Here's Martin. You have to understand I come from a data world. <laughs> so when you come from a data world, you view the world through data lenses and sometimes you force causes through data and technology. But I think you can make a case, you know, for the fact that there is more information available today than there was before to make more people sensitive to this disparity in this uh, sort of pristine area of health research than there has been in the past. At certain levels, it's been known forever, right? So you can speak to any number of representatives from sub-Saharan African countries who are here at this meeting, and they will tell you, right, how disparate, you know, the benefits of health research are, and they can give you example after example. They've known that for a long time. But a lot of other people haven't known that, right? And there are now more data and information and communication technologies that are giving more visibility, you know, to these kinds of, of disparities. And, and not just in health research, but in virtually every domain of our society, right? This information, media, communications are giving more visibility, right, to situations that, that you know, need remediation. Right, for one reason or another. So leading on from all of that, what are the next steps? Well, the next steps would be to uh, have a launch. And that was an interesting uh, thing in itself because I, I sort of thought, well, you know, the launch is going to be in October this year. That doesn't seem like a lot of time. And it seems as if there are a lot of details which haven't really been worked out. But the organisers were very keen to stress that they don't really mind that, that the details can come later. It's really getting a buy-in into the index, the fairness index, which they're concerned about. And when October comes, well, that launch can be anything. So we'll wait and see. Finally, what are the implications of equality? If we achieve some equality between the two zones, in effect, what will the impact be globally? It's a different world we'll be entering. It will be a fairer world. Uh, we would hope that it will be a happier world. And we would hope that the quality of research will become much more relevant to the parties that are uh, most affected. And I would say, in many cases, this would be the parties in the global south. Kaz, thanks very much. John, it's a pleasure. Well, that's it for this month from me, John Escombe, and all our guests here in London. Stay with us for more news and analysis on the world of science and development. Until next time, bye-bye.